Thanks. Uh, I want to mention, uh, last night we had our worship night, and I really appreciate the musicians who put time and effort into making that happen. It was a great time. And then last night and this morning, our church was responsible for the port homeless ministry. Uh, we we uh, Last night, fed, they were fed a meal, and they had a good night's sleep. And then in the morning, they were fed breakfast and uh, taken care of. And, and that is a, a part of our ministry to this area as we get involved in our community. And it's a great thing to do. Uh, the other thing I want to mention is, uh, as we talk about Arizona, be praying for Stephen. You know, the first time we ever went to Arizona, I was this youth pastor and I was doing it and I had no clue what I was doing. I'd never been out on the Navajo reservation. I didn't understand how things worked. I didn't understand what it was like there. And uh, through trial and error, you know, things started happening with a lot of errors. And then uh, Bill Manning took it over from me and went through the exact same process, and, but moved it along. And now Stephen has come on staff with us, and he's the next person in line in this process. And it's a pretty awesome thing, but uh, I also know, it, you know it'll be his first time, and so we're kind of uh, throwing him into the whirlwind, hoping that he lives. So be praying for him. Uh, we're talking about 1 John today. We're at 1 John chapter 4, 13 to 21. And, and as we, we do this, I just want to review quickly just a few little things that I, I, I want to remind you of from 1 John chapter 4, just from the beginning of chapter 4. We saw at the beginning that he was saying there's this problem with false teachers, and so he, he talked about learning how to test false teaching and false teachers, and then he gave us, he gave us how we do it. And this is really important because there's, it's still the same thing going on today. How do we test? How do we test if something's false? And so he said there's, there's a two-step authenticator in testing whether something is, uh, is truthful or not, especially in relation to uh, following God. First of all, we have the Holy Spirit, who, he says, who is an internal authenticator of truth, but it's not just enough to only have the Holy Spirit, he says the second step is the Word of God. The Word of God is the external authenticator of truth, and when the Word of God and the Holy Spirit working together, they expose whether something is true or not in our lives. And so there's this two-step authentication to know, is this really coming from God? Or is this something else? Because there's a lot of false prophets out there today, just like there was any other time. I'm not going to name names. I'm not going to do any of that because I don't think that's really very useful. It's just true. It's just true. There's a lot of that going on. So we talked about that. Then we talked about the origin of love. And John made that great statement, God is love. Where does it come from? It's God. God is love. And he repeats it again in this passage that we're in. And, and then he, we talked about this getting into this habit of loving. And that's when we stopped the other day and we kind of looked at the Greek words for love. And we're gonna, I want to do that again real quick because I think it's pretty, pretty important. And, and I know, you know we had different people, different weeks. And, and so I want you to see, I'm going to just put it up there. First of all, uh, uh, one of the most common Greek words for love is the, the word eros. It's where we get the word erotic. And, and the word eros is this idea of essential love. Not necessarily bad. It's just this idea of essential love. But it is a love because it's, it's, it's sensual. It's the, the, the Greeks would say this is a volcanic love. This love can erupt and then it can subside. It comes and it goes. And when people say, well, we're just not in love anymore, the problem is they started with this. This is what they're talking about then. All right? So that's the first one. That's eros. It's a sensual love. 
Right? Second is storge. Storge is a natural love. It's just a natural affinity you have for someone. You know, if, if I bump into someone, um, being born in Washington, D.C., I have certain allegiances. And so if I bump into someone and I love hockey and they say, I'm a Caps fan, I'm like, my brother, my sister. Yes, it's like we're related because we have something in common and we love it. And we can talk about, you know, different players and, and different things we saw, how excited we are. We have this natural affinity that just comes, it just comes from a natural thing. It's a team we like. It's, it's, it's the way a person looks. You might appreciate the way a person looks. You know, we, we all have those kind of things. And the problem is, as Christians, sometimes we have to rein that in. We have to keep that in check because oftentimes I can walk into a room and I can kind of look through the room and say, I'd like to talk to that person. Oh, I'd like to talk to that person. No, no, yes, no. And what am I doing? On purely subjective, outward basis of knowing maybe a little bit about the person or seeing or whatever it is, I'm eliminating people from the, the realm of friends, on a, and that's a terrible basis for doing that. But the Greeks used this, word, used this word storge, and it was this idea of a natural affection. It's not a wrong thing, but it's just not the complete thing. All right? Okay. Then we come to the big two that you, if you've been in church you heard people pontificate about this in, in a way that I think is not exactly um, right. I'll just say that. You have phileo and you have agape. Now, phileo is often used of a family. It's, it's, it's closeness due to a relationship that you have with that person. Agape is a love that sacrifices itself even if there's not a relationship. And, and also when there is a relationship. Agape can be used of, of, it's, it can be used of brothers agapeing each other. But it puts another ahead of yourself. All right? And so oftentimes agape is held up as this, as, as phileo is kind of this second-rate kind of love, and agape is the big one. And, and, but in Scripture, that's not always, oftentimes, we have times in Scripture where phileo and agape are used for the same love in the same situation. So they're both powerful loves to be held up to be admired to be to be to strive for but agape best describes god in his love for us because god demonstrates his romans 5 8 god demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. He loved us before we loved him. There was no natural relationship. There was no, there was no familial, family relationship. He just loved us. All right? And they both are held up to be honored. Right? It's, it's, and what happens oftentimes, you'll hear people say, ah, phileo is a second-rate love. It's just family love. No, in God, in, it's used in God's word in some of the most precious of passages. And so he's saying these are both powerful loves that we, that we should be a part of. But phileo emphasizes this idea of a closeness due to relationship. And agape emphasizes a sacrificial love that manifests itself even when there is no relationship or even when the relationship has been destroyed through, through different things. So, oh, I'm taking a long time to just um, review and then we said God's love, we talked about it, it's visible, decisive, sacrificial, purposeful, and judicial. We got that out of, of, of 1 John 4. If you're going, oh, I'd like to get, okay, you can go to our website and you can listen to that sermon 
and get it for yourself. I'm not just giving things out free around here, okay? All right. Now, in this too, this is a good time. I want to stop and interject something, and, and this is not necessarily a rabbit trail, but this is a historical cultural thing that you need to know as you read Scripture, and it, it shows its, itself in this passage in 1 John quite a bit. And that is this. Uh, there is a way of, typical way of writing a Hebraic or an ancient Near East way of writing, and it is an Eastern idea and an Eastern form of writing. And what do I mean by that? Well, here, what's going on in this time that this book is written is there's this seismic shift going on. Um, the Greeks and the Romans have risen, and Western civilization, as we know it, is beginning to start, and there is a way of writing that this is the way of writing that we are familiar with. We're very, we're familiar with it. We understand how it works. You, you, you want to, I want to write something. I want to get from point A to point B. What do I do? I go from point A to point B. And I linear, you know, kind of make this, this, this progress in what I write to get to that point. That's very Western. Eastern, we're going to go from point A to point B. Well, I'll go here a little bit. I might even go just a bit past point B to emphasize how impressive point B is. Now I'm going to come back to where I was, and I might repeat what I just said so you don't forget what I just said, and I might move a little further. But in the meantime, this is going on over here, and it kind of affects it, so I'm going to talk about this for a while too. Now I've got to come back, and I've got to repeat again because you might have lost track. So here we go. And, and it can be a very it's disjointed. It can be, it can be difficult to read at times. Have you ever noticed, especially the Old Testament, parts of the Old Testament that you're reading and you're going, he is repeating this over and over and over, and you're like, Moses, Deuteronomy, the cure for insomnia, right? You read this stuff, and you go, it's over and over and repeated again, and, and there's one point where it talks about one of the 12 tribes brought an offering to the Lord, and then it mentions the next tribe brought the exact same offering, and the next tribe brought the 12 in a row, all saying, that. why didn't he just say all 12 brought the same thing? <laughs> why not say that? Because that's point A to point B, right? But what he does, he goes, let's go to point B. Oh, he said, oh, and he did, and he did the two. Oh, look at over here, he did two. And here we are. And you're asleep. Okay? It, it works. It works. 3 a.m., do your devotions in Deuteronomy. I'm telling you right now. Okay. And so they repeat a lot. It's a typical thing in Eastern writing, especially ancient Near East literature. It's a typical thing. And why do they do that? Because if you really pay attention, every time they repeat, they tweak it a little. It's never quite the same. There's always a little bit more that gets added. And so the thought is that, that, that with this, something will become very familiar, and you keep adding through repetition. Why? Because it's an oral culture. How are you going to help people remember things? you're going to repeat it a lot. Because in an oral culture, that's the key to remembering. And so it has this definite purpose back then. But we struggle with that purpose, right? Because we're not an oral culture. We struggle with that some. That's why things, you know, we talk about this Christmas, you know, we always talk about, we talk about genealogies. That's why genealogies are so important. It's an oral culture, and they get repeated over and over and over so that people learn something from them. Now, in this passage, we're going to see repetition. In the whole book of 1 John, it's riddled 
with repetition. John talks about love so many times from so many angles over and over and over. In fact, I'll let you in on a little secret. I've, I, 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 a lot of times what I'll do is I'll listen to uh, lectures or, or other pastors speak on things to get an idea of what other people, I you know, kind of study something. I go, I wonder what other people are saying. And this is, this is the dirty little secret I found. There's a lot of pastors who start First John and quit at chapter 3. You go to their website, it's like, oh, 1 John 1, 1 John 3. Hey, where's 1 John 4? He quit. End of series. Now let's start something fun like Ephesians, you know? They, th- this, happens, this happens a lot. And here's why. Because chapter 4 sounds so much like what, what has already been, saying, been said that people struggle with time. Because what am I going to say that's any different? We're going to do chapter 4 today. Go back and listen to chapter 2. You'll be fine. You know, that's kind of the idea. That's, that's what happens. And so we're seeing here repetition. Why do they quit? Because we want, wow, new, cool, bang. Don't tell me the same thing again. I already heard it two weeks ago. I don't need to hear it again. Right? So let me just show you a quick example of the repetition we're going to see. First John 3, 24. The one who keeps God's commandment lives in him and he is in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. 1 John 4.13. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. You see, it's, it's like the almost exact same thing. He tweaks it a little. There's a few different words. He comes at it from a different angle. But he just repeats the same principle. Because it's important. That's why he's doing it. This is very important. And so, repetition is key. In, in, uh, in 4.13 there, he compacts it a little bit. He states it a little different, but it's the exact same thing. Now, that's how you have to, you have to remember that as you read your Bible. These were, John, uh, John is an Easterner. He's not a Westerner. The one who has the most allegiance to, I guess you could say, to uh, Western thought is the Apostle Paul because he grew up in both. He was taught in both. He came from a very big uh, 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 city that, that had a lot of libraries and learning, and he was a very well-taught guy. And so he kind of straddles both, but he still does it. In your Bibles, you will see repetition. Understand, that's normal for them. As you read the Old Testament especially, and you see things that just, keep, you see, they just get repeated, and that's normal for them. That's how they write. And so when we understand that, we begin to, we begin to understand what we're reading. And when you understand that, you could be more gracious. See, like sometimes maybe I repeat a story, and you go, um, <clears throat> you told us that story like six months ago, dude. You're getting old. Yeah, it's going, right? Well, now you go, oh, no, maybe he's just being Eastern. Think of that, okay? <laughs> so, so, not that I'm losing my memory. I'm just more biblical than you. <laughs> Bam! Okay. <laughs> All right. First point. If you're like, first point, Bob, what are you talking about? Yeah, I understand. We had a long intro. Assurance of salvation. That's where Stephen read, in, in, starting with verse 13, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. There is nothing in that passage that has not already been said in 1 John. 
more than once, oftentimes. And so he's repeating, but he's giving us this great truth. He doesn't want us to forget certain things. We live in him. That's that great word, abide. We abide in him. And what does abide mean? Abide means there's a place that's home. There's a place that's safety. There's a place that's loving. I belong there. I can rest there. And he says, that reminding us, we are in God and God is in us. Now, I always think about being in God, in him. But to think that he wants to abide in me. God wants to be, to rest, to belong in my life. What an incredible thought that is. What a powerful thought. The implications of that are incredible. But how do I know? How do I know that he is in me and I am in him? In verse 24, uh, in 324, he says we're giving, he gives us the fact that it's true. I, I quoted that. I, you saw that up there. And now in chapter 4, he's going to take it further. We see the Spirit is working in us. And so that experience of the Spirit reassures us. So what does he say? In, in chapter 3, he says you are in God and God is in you. Fact. Believe it. Now he says, okay, not just fact, but also this. You experience this. He says, this is something you experience also in your life. So you see, he's saying the same thing, but he's coming at it from two different angles. Objective fact and subjective experience. Just like the two-step authentication, one is subjective, one one is objective. And so the Spirit works in our life, and this causes us to realize who we are and who we belong to. And we see him working. And then it says, we testify. We testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And so we have, to, we have to kind of settle down there for a second and think, okay, we have this mention here of the work of the Holy Spirit. In the, in, in, we're in 1 John. And in the book of John, 26 and 27, he says, when the advocate comes, the one who is called alongside, the Spirit of God, whom I send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you, must, and you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. So now he's, he, he's, John has taught us, Jesus has taught us here, what's the purpose of the Spirit? And the Spirit has more purposes than just that. But one purpose is to testify, to cause me to testify. In John 16, just the next chapter, he says the Spirit convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment. He says the Spirit has this job in your life. And so practic- practically speaking, how does that work? Well, maybe, maybe you've done something, and, and you begin to feel convicted about it. Maybe it was something small, like a lie of convenience, right? Not that I struggle with that, so that's what first comes to my mind. It just came out of the blue, trust me. Okay, so a lie of convenience, and what is that? You're faced with something, like maybe you have plans for Friday night, and somebody comes and says, hey, are you doing something Friday And now you're not sure what you want to say. So maybe you fudge a little bit because you're thinking maybe this person's got a better offer. And she said, well, no, I might be free. You know, oftentimes, if you do this to me, trust me, if you come up to me and say, hey, what are you doing next Sunday? I'm going to come back to you saying, what are we talking about? Because I'm not giving you any info yet. You know, and, 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 and with a lie of convenience, what you do is you avoid struggling through a situation by telling somebody, you know, what we would call a white lie, just a little lie, uh, you, like you don't have plans. So you say, I do have plans or you do have plans. You tell someone I don't have plans. All right. And so what happens? Hopefully, hopefully 
you realized, okay, that was not right. I should not have done that. I kind of, I fudged on the truth there. And so maybe there's a little uh, disappointment in yourself. Maybe you, you, you feel guilty, right? Now, what's going on there? The Spirit is convicting you of something you have done that it is wrong. And he convicts you because when you sin, it hinders your relationship with God. It doesn't stop God from loving you. His love never changes. He tells us that. But what it does is it hinders communication. It hinders intimacy. It hinders oneness with God when I have unconfessed sin in my life. And so the Spirit is saying, hey, you need to deal with this. You need to deal with this. Now, how does he do that? Well, James tells us he uses the Word of God, which James calls a mirror. The Word of God is a mirror. It shows us exactly how we are, not how we wish we were or how we think we are, right? Some mornings, if I've had a really good night's sleep, I wake up, I'm like, man, I'm ready to go. Look out, world, here I come, you know. Go into the bathroom to brush my teeth, and I'm like, oh, man, never mind. I can't do anything. And I just see myself, and it's like, what? You're not this, you know, because you tend to think, I don't know about some of you, but as an older person, I still feel like I'm like 19. But I don't look like I'm 19. And it's always a shock when I look in the mirror, right? Why? Because the mirror tells the truth. It's not going to lie to me. It's not going to go, Bob, <laughs> you got your afro back. No, I don't. It's gone. It's gone. It's gone. Bob, you're an athlete. No, I'm not. Not anymore. That's in, the, that's in the past, and I am way better an athlete now as I look back than I really was at the time. Okay, so the mirror tells the truth. Why? Because it's the Word of God. The Word of God tells the truth in our life, and the Spirit uses the Word of God. Go to Him. Confess. And then as we confess, and what is, we talked about this, what is it's saying the same thing, agreeing with God about something. God, I agree with you that what I did was a lie. I did it to avoid something. Uh, to avoid hurt, to avoid pain, to, to avoid awkwardness. And I lied, God, and I'm sorry. I confess it to you. And again, God's love is not the issue. But unconfessed sin hurts intimacy. And so now I confess, and Scripture tells me, I, then I, now I can move on. I can go. I can move on. Why? Because this has been dealt with now through the Spirit. And that's how the Spirit works in your life. The Spirit convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment. The Spirit leads you to truth. Or maybe sometimes the Spirit reveals something that you need to hear. I love this passage. There's one line. I love this passage. Perfect love casts out fear. That's a powerful thought. And, and, and the Spirit leads you to these thoughts, leads you to these powerful ideas that can change your life and change how you live. We have this Spirit. He lives in us. This is a gift. Very interesting, too. When it says that um, um, we, uh, the Father sent His Son to the... Whatever. Sent the oh, <laughs> in the John passage, the, the Advocate, the Father sends the Advocate... I'm, I'm ruining the whole point of the path. Um, the, 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 uh, the, the Greek, the verb there, the tense is, this is a permanent gift. He is not withdrawn. You can't lose him. It's a permanent gift. It's, 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 it's very plain there in how, it's, how it states it. So when we look at verse 14, 
The Spirit testifies in our life, and in turn, we testify that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And the word to testify is the word to bear witness. I bear witness with my life in word and in action. I testify. Why? Because I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I remember one time, and it's kind of, this is kind of a guilt thing, but I, I remember a guy, because it just kind of stuck with me, a guy one time said, if it was illegal to be a Christian, would there be enough evidence in your life to convict you? And I remember going, oh, wow, that's a downer. (laughs) But there's some truth there, not to make you feel guilty, because we all struggle and we all fall short. But the point is, what's your story? What is your life? Where is it going right now? Are you endeavoring to follow God? And so in verse 14, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, Savior of the world is a loaded phrase. You, 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 we, don't, we don't get it, but back then it was a very loaded phrase. The, the, um, the Roman Caesars, had, beginning with uh, Caesar Augustus, the, 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 son of, the adopted son of Julius Caesar, he decided that Julius was a god, and so he's the son of a god. And so he, when he minted coins... It would say, Augustus, son of God. And then, after Augustus, as it continued, they started adopting the phrase, we're the savior of the world. We we, we have brought this peace to the whole world, so we're the savior of the world. And so that phrase, to anyone who lives in, in in, in, in the Roman Empire, is a loaded phrase, savior of the world. And he says, we are going to bear witness that Jesus is the Savior of the world. They had emperor worship. Augustus was the soter to cosmos, Savior of the world. And you had to pledge this. I'll give you a typical way this would happen. All right? um, every city, every significant town had what they call an agora. An agora is the marketplace. It's where everything happened. And then there was a man who was in charge of the agora. So that if you came, let's say you come with your, uh, you've, you, you're a farmer and you come with a load of kumquats. Um, why kumquats? Because they sound funny to me, so I like that. You come with your, your cart full of kumquats and what you have to do is, here's, here's this main road through the town and there's stalls all along the side of the road. And you have to come to the master of the agora and you have to say, I want to sell my kumquats. And he, he comes over. Well, his job is to certify that whatever is being sold is of good enough quality to be sold in the agora. Because if it's not a good enough quality, what they would tell you is, no, you can't sell it here. Go outside of the town if you want to sell your lame kumquats, you know, however bad they are. Go outside of the town. The very fact that you're selling them outside of the town shows that they were rejected by the master of the agora and they're not good quality. All right? Okay. So you come into town, you're a Christian. You come into town, and the master of the Agora says, dude, nice, great stuff here. I'm gonna be careful what I say. Great stuff here. Um, I have a stall. Man, it's just up over there, high traffic area. You will sell these babies. You will make money today. Great, great. And he says, at the end of the day, you pay me a small fee for the rental of the stall, we're good to go. If you don't sell very many, your fee goes down in accordance to how many you sell. Great, okay. And he says, now, one last thing, just take a pinch of incense, put it over this little 
altar and say, Caesar is God. Uh-oh. She said, well, you know, I don't want to be a troublemaker or anything. I'm a good citizen of Rome. But I believe Jesus is God. I can't do that. And he's going to say, what? You won't pledge fealty to Caesar? Are you trying to bring the wrath of the gods down upon my marketplace? Are you trying to cause trouble? Get out. Go sell them outside the town. If you take that stand, you can't sell here. Okay? So, saying that Jesus is the Savior of the world, because they would say, sprinkle this, say that Caesar is God, say that Caesar is the Savior of the world. One of those, there's about three different phrases. All of them, you know, were, were good enough. If you can't say that, you have to sell outside. Now, selling outside, remember? Selling outside the town, what does that mean? Your goods are second rate. They were rejected by the master of the marketplace for some reason. So somebody, they're gonna look and they're gonna say, boy, yours look good, but there must have been a worm. He must have broke one open and discovered something. They may be rotten inside. There's a reason you can't sell. I am not gonna pay you what you think you deserve for those. And so it becomes now economically. You have paid a terrific price for the fact that you won't say that Caesar's the savior of the world. Just, you just won't say that. And so this is what happens this, in this far-flung empire. He says, we have seen and testified, verse 14, that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. We will testify to that. What is he saying? We will publicly live that in the marketplace so that if you craft things, now you sell them in the place where the second-rate stuff is at. Right? If you, if you grow things, you're selling them... And so you get less money than everyone else is getting, even if, you're, even if your product is better. That's what the possibility is. Now, the Roman Empire was a huge empire. Not everywhere totally enforced this, because that's what happens with huge empires. But at any moment, it could be enforced. At any moment, it could be enforced. We know this because in the ruins of Ephesus, there's a place where uh, a person who looked like they were, they, they, they were a craftsman, like a blacksmith, and, and on the stone in front, of their, uh, in front of their opening to their little shop was a fish. They're saying, I'm a Christian. But we know that around 100 to 150 AD, that shop was burned to the ground, and the rest weren't. And so evidently, somebody decided to enforce it, and a guy who'd been there for a number of years, I can't say that. Or a woman who'd been there for a number of years, I can't say that. And they lost their ability to create income. All right? And so, this is, this, so when we say this, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son, His Son, to be the Savior of the world... You know, I don't know if you've ever met somebody who says that, you know, like you say, uh, if you acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God and you have some smart aleck that comes to you and goes, oh, fine, Jesus is the Son of God. I don't believe it. Do I have salvation now because I said it? No. He's saying here, he's, he's clarifying. It's a testimony. It's a way of life for a person. You testify to this. This is the way you live. And so to believe this concerning Jesus, he's the savior of the world, is to risk something in those days. And in verse 15, 
He says, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. Okay? And this word acknowledge, we've been here, this is used a number of times in John, is to say the same thing, just like in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, if we say the same thing. And this word has the understanding that you're testifying that something is true in your life. And it's a judicial word, actually. It means it's a binding statement that you adhere to now and will in the future. It's a promise. And so in verse 15, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. If anyone says Jesus Christ is the Son of God, I will follow him with my life from now on. And my life reflects that. He's saying this is what's true of you. God lives in you and you live in God. And this is an incredible promise. When you surrender to God, you're in him and he comes to you. He lives in you. He's with you every moment of every day. Why? Because he wants to be there. This is his joy. Then we get to verse 16. He says, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And so in verse 16, he's saying we have something to rely on. God loves me. God loves you. It's very simple. It's easy to say. People say it all the time, and yet it's profound. The God of the universe, the creator, the one who keeps this whole thing running, the one who's as close to you as your very next breath, he loves you. He loves you. And, and, and there may be times, maybe on a human level, times where God has uh, shown you what love really is, maybe through, through human means. Um, when I was in high school and my older brother, Steve, he had witnessed to me and I had told him he was, he was crazy and I didn't want to have anything to do with this Jesus thing and just leave me alone. And he bought a brand new car. Uh, he had just graduated from college. He brought a brand new car. And he told me, um, I asked him, I said, can I, can I take somebody out on a date in your car? And he says, yes, you can. You can take somebody out. Just make sure, you know, tomorrow morning I'll be at work, but tomorrow morning clean the car so that, you know, it looks as good as when I gave it to you. And um, he, knew, he knew me. So, so I'm out there cleaning his car at my family's house, and, and I opened the door, and I, I, I had accidentally rolled onto the hose. I was going to rinse it off real quick. And so I opened the door, and I'm, I, I, I'm going to back up. And totally not looking where I was backing, there was a little stake. It's been there the whole time. I knew it was there. I just wasn't paying any attention. And so when I backed up, the stake hit the open door and sprung it. So I'm like, oh, crap, 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 crap. You know, and, and so I get out, and, and I go like that with the door, and it goes womp, womp, right back out because it, it wouldn't quite close unless I leaned against it and pushed it closed. And then I realized if I'm in the car and I hit the door Hand, you know, I pull the handle of the door, the door goes, wonk, <laughs> like you could kill somebody with it, you know. Somebody, hey, come here, come here, bonk, ah, that was, you know. It, it, it. And now I'm like, oh my goodness. So, of course, being me, my first thought is, how can I blame this on someone else? And I, I couldn't. And so my brother got home and I told him. And, uh, and I showed him, you know, how cool it was that you could make your door fly open three times faster than normal. And I was just like, I'm so sorry. I got a feeling I'm in debt to you for the next 20 years to pay for this, whatever it costs. To... And he said, it's okay. You didn't mean it. It's just a car. This car's not my life. 
And of course, it was my brother, so he goes, actually, you know, what is my life? And I'm like, Tah, Jesus, you know. Um, and, and he said, that's right. Jesus is important to me, more important than this car. Jesus says for me to love. He said, Robert, I love you, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. And, and I remember thinking, dude, he is sold out to this Jesus thing like crazy. May I never go there. And, but, but, but I never, okay, I'm here. I'm, I'm living it right now. I'm, I feel the uh, of what I did, and, the, and, the, and I've never forgotten it because it was an act of love. Now, maybe it was phileo because we were brothers, or maybe it was agape because I was a lousy brother. But he loved me, and I knew it. I knew it. God loves you. He loves you when you screw up. He loves you when you do right. He just loves you. And you can rest in that. You can rest in it. And this assurance, God's saying, I want you to be assured. We're talking about assurance of salvation here. I love you. You can rest assured of that. And that assurance then leads to this, freedom from fear. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence in the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. All right. So he says, this is how love is made complete. Now, sometimes that's translated perfect, but it's, it's not the idea of that once it's done, it's done for good. It's the idea of love is made complete in a very specific instance. All right. When my brother Steve said, I love you, I forgive you, don't worry about it, love was completed. That was complete, perfect love in that instance. There were other times where he wasn't quite so loving to me because he's just a human being. But in that moment, love is complete. And here he's trying to give the idea. He says, he says this love is complete among us. We, we will find times where love will be absolutely perfect and complete in our lives. And it will stun us. It will change us. It will revolutionize our life. And he says that kind of love, then what happens is it gives you confidence in the day of judgment. It helps us. It gives us an assurance that we have freedom from fear. And when love is complete, it reaches its purpose in that particular situation. And why does it re result in confidence? Why? Because sin and shame are gone. Peter tells us love covers a multitude of sins. And when this love is working in our lives, we become confident. We rest assured in the love that God has for us. We take him at his word. We trust him and we abide in it. We rest in it. It becomes a part of our life. And, it, and what does he tell us? He says, invert, uh, he says, we will have confidence in the day of judgment. That word confidence is, is also an idea for boldness. It is a child life belief, belief that I am accepted and welcomed. Now, here's one of those things I've said a number of times, and I use this, but it's, it's one of my, I think about if I'm praying and there's God in heaven, and angels are singing, and you know, and everybody's there. And God says, shush, everybody, shush. My son Bob is talking to me. And in Scripture, Scripture's clear that we have this now, this face-to-face -face relationship, so he gets down to my level. He says, what, what is it? I'm like, God, I'm so, I feel bad, I did this. And I, and I start my whining routine. And, and, and I always imagine this, because I just like to think of Peter this way. I always imagine that Peter's still talking to somebody. You know, blah, blah, blah. And God is like, Peter, zip it. Bob is talking right now. Take your turn. You know, everybody takes their turn. 
something like that. That's, yeah. That's how it worked in my house, so I figured maybe it works in God's house too. But what, it, what is it? I am welcomed into his presence. I, man, I can come unashamed into his presence and tell him, even if what I'm saying is stupid and foolish and, and, and dumb, he loves it because it's, it's his son. It's his daughter. And he says, we have this confidence. We have this boldness that we can enter into, into his presence without fear. What an incredible thing to enter into the presence of the God of the universe and not to have to be afraid because normally I would be afraid. I mean, this is the God of the universe. And he says, no. A childlike belief that I am welcomed and accepted. One other time that this happened in my life, I think about, is the uh, um, first time I asked my wife out, she wasn't my wife at the time, um, First time I asked, that <laughs> just sounded wrong. First time I asked Bev out, and, and it's, it's a weird thing. I, I, had a, I had a roommate. I graduated from college. I had this roommate, and I'd seen this girl in college. I thought she was really cute and funny and lots of fun and just wanted to hang out with her. And I told my roommate that I wanted to hang out with her, and he goes, I wanted to too. I'm like, oh, okay, so here we go, right? No. So, 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 <laughs> this is terrible. This is terrible. We flipped. We flipped a coin. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and now I'm going to have to go into the presence of my wife with fear and trembling. Um, his name was Mike. We, we flipped and he won. And he called her and he called her to ask her out. And she started quizzing him. Well, I mean, like, I'm really interested in people who are serious about the Lord. Where are you at spiritually? How are your devotions coming? Are you spending time with God? Is he important in your life? And all I saw was my friend going, well, I mean, yeah, of course, I mean, isn't God important? Everybody's like, oh. And I was like, I'm in. <laughs> I'm in because he's screwing it up and I know the questions. I'm like, this is a done deal, right? And so she went out with me and, 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 and we went out a few times. And I remember going, this is the greatest thing, this person, because I'd been through some difficult stuff. I just said, look, I'm just going to be me, and it's going to be a little wacky and crazy at times, right? You guys know that. This is how sermons go for me. And it's going to be a little wacky and crazy at times, but I'm just going to be me. I'm not going to put on faces. I'm not going to try to be something I'm not, so you will know what you're in for if you want to date me. And she was saying, well, I've been through similar things. I'm just going to be that way. And there was this realization, this person accepts me for who I am, I don't know if I'd ever felt that before in my life. This person accepts me for who I am. This is the greatest thing in the world. It took me about five dates to go, this is it. This is it. I'm all in on this one. And so we struggle sometimes with these things. But sometimes it breaks through and we are thrilled with the love God has for us and the completeness of our salvation, that all our sins are covered, that all our shame is banished. And what happens when a person begins to grasp that? They become more like Jesus. And, he's, and he's say, that's what he's saying here. We are not him, but we can be like him, to live with confidence, to live without fear, to live lovingly like Jesus did. And when you are loved, you do not fear because love banishes fear. And he's taught, he tells us a little bit, it's not, it's not a holy awe, it's not a reverence, it's a fear of punishment. And he says, you, you, you do not have to have that fear. Real quick, I'll wrap this up. with. Then 
this assurance of salvation, it leads to a freedom from fear. Freedom from fear leads to being able to love in the family. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. And, and he's talking about the fact that our capacity of love is based on the fact that we are first loved by God. That Romans 5.8 passage. God demonstrates his love. He demonstrates it in a visible way. His love for us while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so there's plenty of places, I want to say that there are plenty of places where God talks about loving all the people around us, but in 1 John, he is honing in on the family of God. He is saying it has to start here. This love here should be extraordinary. We say sometimes um, here, this is a safe place. This is not a condemning place. This is a safe place that, that wants to worship and glorify God and allow, the, allow the, the, the truth of the word of God to speak for itself. Why? Because there's lots of people who are used to being condemned their whole lives. And the early Christians, they said, behold how they love one another. Those people are crazy in the way they love each other. And so we show the love of Christ to the world by the way we love each other right here. To not love, he deals with this earlier in the book. So he's repeating again. He's making them remember. Remember, we literally looked up that word. It means to close your heart to a person. To refuse to feel for them. To refuse to meet a need that God has called you to meet. And he says, then if you talk about how important God is to you, and you close your heart to people, you are lying. You're lying. You've got it wrong somehow. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. That's not the st what's at stake here. What's at stake here is the fact that as Christians, how do we live? He says, how can you love God if you can't love one of his children? And so he closes there. He says, you have this assurance. You can know that you are loved. And that love brings you a freedom from fear. And that freedom from fear allows you, gives you the freedom to love people unreservedly, unconditionally, to love in their lives, to show them how much God has changed you and you now want to reflect that in how you live. So the question then becomes, who do you need to love? There's too many, there's too many to love. So then it becomes, who is there a specific person? God, you want me. You want me to reach out to that specific person. Show me. Show me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. And that it teaches us, that it convicts us. And even this morning, your spirit can work. Take this word and use it. Help us not to walk away and say, oh, that was great. And totally forget about it. But to take it and to apply it to our lives. To be thinking, how can I... How can I agape? How can I phileo other people? How can I show them how much you've changed me in visible, concrete ways? How can I testify that Jesus Christ is the Savior, my Savior? And Lord, as we pray this, you will bring things to our minds. So help us to be open and willing. Help us to be courageous, maybe to do some things we don't want to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to take an offering. And if you're a guest here, we want you to know we don't expect you to give. Uh, this is what our regular tenders and our members do.